Good morning, Idlewild Bible Church family. How is everyone? Good? I'm not convinced. Well, okay, first off, notice this is, did anybody notice this morning that this weather is just amazing motorcycle weather? Anybody? Right? Um, I need a nap, but I might do something different. I don't know after church. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, no, what a beautiful, but, okay, let's be honest. How many of us over the last few weeks have had some rough things going on, right? Oh, man, it's crazy. And we know, of course, uh, as, as Wayne said, talk was pine sold. Uh, some of um, our key people here, uh, leaders, Clint, everybody, are on staff over there. So there's so much uncertainty in the air. I And I... I played a joke that kind of backfired. I played a joke on you guys. Um, I don't know if you recall the last time I was up here. Uh, we talked. We were in Luke 5, and we talked about legalism. And I mentioned that that's a difficult thing because a lot of us are, can be very prone to that. So it's very hard to address issues that hit at the heart of where sometimes we have risks. And I mentioned that... Um, if you, uh, you know, that it's, it's a difficult thing and it's, I'm a little worried about it. And if Wayne is here preaching the next week, uh, you would know what happened to me. And I did that knowing full well that Wayne would be preaching the next week. So I thought that would be really funny to play this trick on you. And then what I didn't know is God was going to have someone else preach the following week too. So he beat me at my own game and it was, it was funny. I found it to be kind of funny, um, but, uh, but then, you know, how, getting sick, and then now Clint is sick today, and there's so many things going on, and, and uh, we know that there is just intense spiritual warfare around us that affect all of those things and, and, and all of that. And the kicker was, uh, on Wednesday, I was here with Awana, uh, and I did the Ask the Pastor thing, and they gave me this, these cool posters and cards and stuff for uh, being the pastor, um, things I don't deserve, just amazing stuff, and um, hung out with them, and then I went to go, I had it, all my stuff setting over there, and I went to go uh, take my posters and stuff to my office, and Denise followed me, and she grabbed my Bible and went with me, the Bible that I had been preaching from for like almost 15 years, it has all kinds of notes in it, and it's, it's kind of a little tattered and worn, but I love this Bible so much, and I had not seen it since. And it wasn't, Denise, I remember seeing it in the house. Denise remembers putting it down in the house, and I had not seen it since. First service, this was very sad for me, and I said, I, I'm just going to, you know, get a really expensive lambskin one and take notes in it even harder, you know. And then between services, it showed up. It was in Eli's bed, my son. So after church, we're going to go have lunch and do an exorcism. But, um, my goodness. So anyhow, but the whole point, and, and actually, this was, this was a freebie that Crossway had sent me years ago, and, uh, I don't know, some time ago. He's, they sent a whole bunch of stuff for free to look at, you know, so that we buy it from them. So uh, God is one who 
will provide, who will supply our needs. And uh, he will continue to do so. And I'm not sure how all of things or every, everything's going to pan out, but I'm banking on the fact that he's going to do it better than we could plan. I'm, gonna, I'm banking on the fact that, that the, the difficult things that are taking place right now are an answer to like all our prayers. Um, that's what I'm banking on because our God can do that. So if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. If you're going to Vegas at all, bet on God. That's all I can say. That's, he's Luke chapter 6. Starting in verse 1. We're going to go through the first 11 verses. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He continues in verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered a synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to him, I ask you this, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Our gracious, merciful, holy God, we... Thank you for giving us this beautiful um, Sunday morning in, in the midst of the uncertainty that you know the outcome of. And you've given it for us to gather as your church, your body in the name of Jesus. We surrender our hearts and our minds to you that we may be clean by the washing of your word. Cause us to receive your scriptures with holy submission, with genuine reverence this morning. Help us to understand grace and to, to see ourselves for who we are so that we might lead, love our brothers and sisters rightly and be merciful, extending grace in motion and honoring you. God, we ask that your Holy Spirit dwell powerfully with us as we open your word, as we receive that which gives us knowledge of you. We give this time over to you and to your word. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. Anybody here remember WWJD? If you've been a Christian for a long time, you might remember WWJD. Who had the bracelet? Anybody have the WWJD bracelets? That's right. Did, did anybody have the headbands or the bandanas? Look at it. See on the corners there, WWJD. Anybody have those? Right? Did anybody have the trapper keeper? Like those, right? What would Jesus do 
WWJD. That was the mantra. It had, it had a really good message. It was practical. It was a good reminder of how we're to live. We're Christians. We're to be like Jesus. What would Jesus do? There was a lot good about it. But then what did we, or at least a lot of us, do with it? Many of us weaponized it, didn't we? Instead of saying, looking at my decisions, look at my life, what would Jesus do? I started pointing. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? We turned on our own team and our own team turned on us. That doesn't sound very Christian. What would, would, would Jesus listen to that? Would Jesus say that? Would Jesus drink that? Would Jesus watch that? What? would Jesus do? Look at this gem that I found on Google. Okay, anybody here, would anybody here wear this one? <laughs> I wouldn't do that. Jesus. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's just proof of what I'm saying, right? Like, seriously. And look at the Jesus face on there. Like, uh, anyhow, this is what we did with it, right? You see, the premise is very good. But what happened is that many Christians... Instead of asking those questions of themselves, went around asking them of other Christians as sort of like these pop Christian code enforcement agents with like colorful bracelets as a uniform. And that's the trap that the Pharisees fell into as well. See, there's nothing new under the sun. We're human. This is what we do. To the point in our text Today, we saw the Pharisees asking a lot of questions of Jesus and his disciples, but we don't see them asking anything of themselves. They started with Christ's identity. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Then they questioned his company. Why is he hanging out with these obvious sinners? Then they asked about the behavior of Jesus and his disciples. Why don't they participate in the practices that produce holiness that all the other faithful Christ, uh, uh, Jews do? And the passage last, last time was Luke uh, 5, 33 through 39, when we looked at what it looks like when we become legalistic, like the Pharisees. And this week, I want to put a spin on that. I want to put a little more attention on how we respond when that legalism targets us. When we are faced with these Christians, when we're asked, would Jesus do that? At this point, the Pharisees, to the Pharisees, it appeared that the, di the disciples were breaking Sabbath law. The disciples had violated the established Jewish code of conduct by harvesting and threshing grain on the Sabbath. And Jesus will commit the same sin in their eyes by healing a man on the Sabbath. So keep your fingers in Luke 1. Let's, let's, or Luke 6, rather. Uh, we'll start in verse 1. Let's look at that. And keep your finger there throughout the morning. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Now, Sabbath keeping was a central feature of Jewish practice. They took it very seriously. But even in our Western Christianity, issues surrounding Sabbath can be very contentious. There are some Christians that feel we must observe Sabbath on Saturday. Christians like the Seventh-day Adventists, probably the um, Messianic Jews. And they, 
And that is because God rested on the seventh day. It comes from the Ten Commandments. It's what the law in the Old Testament said. There are other Christians who feel that Sabbath should be on Sunday because we're in the New Covenant. It's the day of the Lord's resurrection and the beginning of creation. And so we have our own ideas. They're not always the same. The events that we're looking at today are also recorded in Matthew and in Mark. And Mark actually records Jesus as saying this in Mark 2, 27. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The point is that we should have Sabbath. We should get a substantial period of rest each week. You know what it's like if you work, if you labor for seven days, right? It, we need that Rest. God's law is not arbitrary. It is for his glory, but also for our good. When the Pharisees had done what they had done was to create guardrails then to prevent violating the Sabbath. But in doing so, they made Sabbath a burden that was more stressful than it was restful. So for each of us, we have to decide kind of what that looks like. There are Christians that are tied to a particular day of the week. They won't work or accept a shift on that day. And remember that the Sabbath isn't, doesn't necessarily have to be the day that we go to church. For most of us, it is. But that, the Sabbath is a day that we commit to rest. When I was in New York, we had, we had almost two acres. This can look different for everybody, right? This rest. Uh, and, and more than an acre of that was this lush green grass. Well, it was lush and green most of the time, except when it was covered in snow like seven months out of the year. But, but the rest of the year, there's so much water, so much rain, so much moisture in the ground and in the air. The, the grass was just incredibly green and one of the most sublime things. We didn't even have sprinklers or anything. Sitting on my lawnmower, a little lawn tractor, and just going back and forth, line after line after line. I can't explain why, but it was, that's, that was almost as restful as it came. I mean, I was sitting. I wasn't pushing a mower. That would be work. I was like, it was like sitting in a car like this, right? And I'm mowing the lawn back and forth. Oh, and then, you know, other yard work, it wasn't so much. It just, but the mower, it just lowered my heart rate. And then seeing the beauty of that freshly mowed lawn. Has anybody here ever laid in a freshly mowed lawn? Like you lay there all day, right? Oh man! And then the sunlight kind of trickling through the ash and maple leaves, kind of creating this ever-changing, beautiful pattern of light in the grass. It's just life-giving for me, right? And, and realize I was sitting. It would be work if I had to push a mower. But, and, I, and in eternity, I kind of hope there's a lawn to mow, right? Just every now and then, because for me, that is just so sublime. For a lot of people, it, it wouldn't be that way. It would be a chore, so it wouldn't be very restful. In reality, Sabbath is something that we do out of obedience because it's healthy and good for us. Something restful, a day we take because when we take care of ourselves, it honors God. 
it can take many different forms. A couple things you would avoid on your Sabbath. Anything that is part of your vocation, that's labor. Even if you enjoy your job, that's labor. You got to take a break from that every, every, every week. You really do. I, I know my favorite thing in the world, the thing, the activity I enjoy most is when I'm digging through the scriptures and then I'm re- and then I, I come up with a question and then I dig and I go into my library and I start grabbing books and I open them up and I'm finding answers and I love that and I spend I spend somewhere between 24 and 32 hours a week preparing a, a sermon and digging through the scriptures and I love it you guys I love it so much there's just it but I have to take a break I have to have a day off if I don't take a day off from that it's labor it's work I'm not giving my brain and my body the rest that it needs also, any kind of vigorous work that would make you tired. I mean, yeah, that's, that's the opposite of resting. So if you have, even if it's a bike race or a marathon or something like that, if it's on a Sunday or Saturday, take another day. We need to rest our bodies. We need to rest our minds. That, but also part of Sabbath is that you're working hard the rest of the week. I know people who have like seven days of Sabbath a week. And that's, you don't need to pick a day then. Your life is a Sabbath. Um, that's continues in verse 1. His disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Customarily, a teacher would be held responsible for his disciples, and Rabbi Jesus is in the field with his disciples, and they're hungry, and they start snacking on the grain in the field. And it was perfectly legal. The farmers actually were required to permit people passing through to munch on their goodies that they're growing, right? Leviticus 23, verse 22, it says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather, gather the gleanings after your harness. You shall leave them, or harvest rather, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So, so it was required of the farmers to leave something for the poor. And, and, and so what they were doing by picking that grain, they weren't stealing. This was the law. And the law was a mercy because God is merciful. We know this. The Pharisees had over a thousand regulations. They added over a thousand regulations to the law because they wanted to make sure that people didn't wander into sin, that they they didn't get too close to breaking the law and, and doing that. So they clarified it. Verse two, Luke 6, 2. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate bread, the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. By picking grain, the disciples could have been accused of having harvested on the Sabbath. But by rubbing them between their fingers, what they were guilty of was threshing grain on the Sabbath. And that was forbidden in the Mishnah, which was a, it was rabbinic literature from the second temple period, uh, which had lasted from 516 BC to 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. And all of this was recorded in Mishnah. All these rules were recorded in Mishnah, these traditions uh, by the Pharisees. And they took it upon themselves to enforce it. So it really was imposed upon all of the Jews. And the Pharisees, unlike God, were not very concerned with mercy. The 
put them at odds with Jesus who said in Matthew 9.13, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but the sinners. The Pharisees neglected to see God's character in the scriptures that they were so faithfully trying to enforce. But the Old Testament, which they would read, said things like what we see in Proverbs 21.3. 21, Proverbs 21.3, to do righteous and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Or Hosea 6.6, 6, where it says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Or Micah 6.8, where he says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness or mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And the Pharisees took great pride in their strict adherence to the law. This was in contrast to the ministry of Jesus. Kent Hughes said mercy was at the heart of Jesus' ministry. Jeremiah 22, 5, 16 says, Do you think you're king because you compete in cedar? Do not your father, did not rather your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy, and then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord? But because the Pharisees were so rigid in their practice, in the code that they followed, they turned mercy into a crime. R.C. Sprawl said, it's a wonder that Jesus, God incarnate, didn't at this point decide that he had enough and unleashed the full power of his deity on the Pharisees. In any case, he patiently answered their objection and reminded them of Old Testament history. <clears throat> what they did, the Pharisees challenged the disciples and Jesus answered on their behalf by appealing to the Old Testament and appealing to 1 Samuel chapter 21. You could turn there if you want, 1 Samuel 21. John Nolan said Jesus is clearly taking responsibility for his disciples. Let's look at how Jesus answered because he appealed to Scripture. Often when we're faced with opposition, when legalism tries to indict us, we appeal to reason, don't we? Uh, but Jesus here appeals to God's word. How, how can we lift up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and defend against those who criticize our Christian liberties? 1 Samuel 21 one through six. This is what Jesus quotes. He says, Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Look, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men of, uh, for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand. But there's holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. 
the vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey, how much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave them the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of presence, which was removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it's taken away. The bread was not for regular people. Um, it was set apart as something holy. Only the priests were allowed to eat the bread of presence. Now, let's take an illustration here. I, I think we would all agree that sometimes we take a, a communion a little bit lightly. We don't give it the reverence that we ought to. But I want to imagine going into a Roman Catholic church. Not that I would encourage, encourage you to do that, but I want to imagine going to a Roman Catholic church and then eating all the wafers that had been prayed over and set aside for Eucharist because you're hungry. Like, that would not go well. They don't even give the wine to anyone but the priest because they're afraid they might spill a drop. And we'll all agree that the Roman Catholics kind of have a, we'll call it a gross misunderstanding of communion. But because of that, people would be absolutely mortified if you just started munching on the Eucharist wafers because you were hungry. Right? There's, not, that, not that they're necessarily right in that but at least <laughs> i mean they're, they're, the the seriousness with which they take that is the same seriousness that they had that the bread of presence had in the temple so that's the kind of imagery that we're having here right uh, years ago uh, i had i attended one time an, an egyptian coptic church uh it was for an assignment in seminary and i i had asked one of the elders if their communion was an open table or if it was just for orthodox and he said it was for baptized Orthodox only. And I respected that. But he also told me to stick around because after the service, the priest would hand out uh, pieces of the leftover bread that they, uh, and, and that they would love for me to stick around and have a piece of that bread. And so I did. And you know, I'll, I'll tell you, there was something, it had a special feel to it because the point was to display a form of mercy. And I, I don't know, but I, I wonder if the roots of that tradition that they have go back to our passage in Luke uh, and in 1 Samuel. And, and I kind of like that picture of mercifully offering something that is considered holy to someone common for their needs, because that's what Jesus did, right? Now, again, the Orthodox have some theological and doctrinal things, um, much like the Roman Catholics that I think we would very much disagree with, but I, but I, I thought this was kind of a neat thing that, that the Coptics did. Consequently, even though it's a very high churchy environment, uh, all kinds of traditions and different rituals over like a three-hour church service, the leaders in the congregation were just so kind. They were super gracious and super friendly. And, I, and again, I'm not affirming everything that, that uh, the Orthodox churches do, but I think um, that what they did there showed an attitude of mercy and it showed how an attitude of mercy can affect the entire personality of a church. They had very strict rules, but they applied them very mercifully. I thought that was kind of cool. Anyhow, the Pharisees didn't do that. God-pleasing mercy will be evident in our social and our spiritual ethics. We contend for prenatal persons, for the unborn, because it's, it is just, it is right to be the voice that they don't yet have. That's mercy. 
right? We oppose the injustice of racism, regardless of who is the object of preference or prejudice. That's, that's mercy, right? Next week, uh, during announcements, Jeremy and Teresa are going to share how they're building a ministry of mercy for the homeless. You, you're in for something cool. I love what they're doing. Kent Hughes said, indisputably, mercy is a sure sign of knowing God and living a life that pleases him. Jesus here calls himself the son of man also, moving on. It's the third most frequently used title for Jesus in the New Testament, and it's also the title that he used most frequently for himself. And it comes out of Daniel 17. Or, I'm sorry, Daniel 7. Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It's a, yeah, hallelujah. This is, it's a title, Son of Man is a title that not only identifies him with our human condition, but denotes authority. It demonstrates that he has authority. And so Jesus is applying it here that way. He's revealing that he himself as the one to whom all authority has been given and that his authority even applies the Sabbath to, to God's law. And since only God can have authority over his own law, the implications here of what Jesus is saying are enormous. While Midrash created laws for Sabbath keeping, Sabbath itself was part of the Ten Commandments. In fact, it was instituted not there, but in creation when God himself rested on the seventh day. And because of that, only the Creator can have authority over Sabbath. So here, Jesus is identifying himself as Creator God and is asserting his authority over Sabbath. That's huge. Let's move on to verse 6, Luke 6, verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And so we continue here. Again, the narrative pits human need against ceremonial human law as we move into another Sabbath account. Continues, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. Now there's no doubt that the Pharisees made sure this man was front and center to get Jesus' attention. No doubt in my mind. R.C. Sprawl drew attention to our tendency to make extra rules. We do that, right? Um, he says this, Christians often formulate all kinds of laws that have nothing whatsoever to do with the law of God. No drinking, no dancing, no going to movies or theater. How do these rules and regulations come up to be tests of Christianity when they're nowhere in the Word of God? We, like the Pharisees, create rules that we can keep instead of obeying the rules that God gives us, which are much harder to keep. Anybody can refrain from seeing the movies, but not to slander? That's difficult to obey. Ouch. Sprawl does a good job of hitting this really where it hurts, doesn't he? Wow. Here's the thing. When we're faced with that kind of legalism, it isn't just random drama. The enemy has a purpose in trying to split hairs and divide us. 
Verse 7, Luke 6, 7. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Now you see, the Pharisees had figured out that mercy is one of Jesus' true, uh, uh, chief attributes. And so they purposefully drew their aim upon that in order to accuse him. I'm not much of a hunter, but I can imagine that it matters what part of a deer that you aim for. If you're a hunter, you might know this. If you shoot a deer in the butt with a 22, you might not have venison that night. But if you nail a deer in the heart with a 12-gauge slug or a 30-06, a delicious supper is probably in the cards. Anybody here like venison? Like three of us? I love venison, right? The Pharisees drew close and tried to hit Jesus where his heart was at. Mercy. That's where his heart was at. And they tried to take out the big guns. They, they brought a sadly disfigured man who was helpless in so many ways on Sabbath. Hey, Jesus, what happens when the rules forbid your mercy? It was a trap. Satan is our accuser. Satan loves rules. He loves lots of rules so that he can trap us. God gives rules, and he's given us plenty of them. God gives rules because he loves us. It's a mercy. But Satan uses rules so he can trap us. Let's go on to verse 8. I love this. But Jesus, but he knew their thoughts. Jesus knew their thoughts, right? And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. Now, notice that the Pharisees tried to exploit this man, but Jesus calls him out, brings more attention to him. The man obeys. The tension's building. This man's now at the center of a dispute between Jesus and the Pharisees. I am glad I wasn't that man, right? All eyes are on this guy. In verse 9, Jesus said to them, I ask you, this is where he fires his shot. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? Let that sink in. Before Jesus puts his mercy on display, he challenges the rigidity of the way that the Pharisees viewed the law because he knew exactly what they were thinking. The law was not arbitrary. It was not given so that we would have something to obey. The law was given for God's glory and for our benefit. And it's summed up in that we are to love God and to love others. In Matthew 22, Matthew 22, 34 to 40. Oh, read this over and over again. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test them. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Kent Hughes said, true Christians long for mercy to come to sinners. True, true Christians do evangelism. When our Christian practice is, in, is rooted in that kind of mercy, instead of strict adherence to a set of rules, we will face opposition even from our own team. Verse 
It's the path of least resistance. It's much easier to criticize each other than it is to evangelize the lost. And the enemy is really good at exploiting that weakness. Verse 10, it says, and after looking around at them, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. Jesus traps them with their own trap. Okay, tell me it would be better to resist doing what is good because it stabbeth. How are you going to answer that? The man's hand becomes whole and useful. How are the Pharisees going to condemn that now? And since they were caught in their own trap, they become furious. This is what it says in verse 11. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Why did it anger them? They were not merciful. But they couldn't condemn Jesus' mercy without losing the support of regular people. I see it all the time, right? You, you've seen this. People hold to an opinion, and then their opinion is upended and proven false by the truth. And then they, at that point, they have a choice. They can either accept the truth and change their opinion, or they can become angry and attack the one who confronted their falsehood with the truth. And most of the time, in my experience, they attack. And that's how the Pharisees responded. They were faced with truth. They couldn't accept it. And they attacked. When Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth, the, you might remember this, the people in the synagogue didn't like what he had said and they tried to yeet him off a cliff because he claimed to be Messiah. You remember that? But then up to this point, though, we faced the Pharisees. And they weren't like that yet. They'd just been questioning him and his disciples. But here's where the tide turns, and the Pharisees become what would be Jesus' primary opposition. And they would remain, or they would actually maintain that status, rather, until they finally succeeded in having him crucified. And what's interesting is that these are the ones that were most serious about preserving the purity of the Jewish scriptures in their culture. You see, you see where there are risks, right? Like we are, we are rightly a church that is serious about the scriptures. I will not change that. The scriptures are what reveal God to us. But there's a danger that we face. Because the scriptures testify about God. And if we miss that part, if we fail to recognize that our Bible teaches us about God and helps us to know Him by revealing His character, we risk turning the Scriptures, God's Word, that reveal Him into a list of instructions. You remember the old acronym we used to use in Sunday school? Basic instructions before leaving earth. Anybody remember that one? I'm going to make some people mad here. I don't like that. I don't like it. Why? Like, it's not a bad acronym. It makes sense. But that's not what the Bible is. Yes, it contains instructions, but it's not a list of rules. It, it tells us who Jesus is. It tells us who God is. The Bible isn't a list of rules. The Bible is a revelation that God has given us about himself so that we might know him. There are two kinds of revelation. 
There's general revelation. That's how God reveals himself to us in creation. What a better place to live. Uh, it, it, can you think of any better place to live to, to receive that than Idlewild, right? Yeah, God reveals himself to us in creation, but then we have special revelation. And that's how he's revealed himself to us in the scriptures. It's much more specific. And when we see the scriptures as one big law code, that results in legalism. And it's what the Pharisees did, and they put Jesus on a cross. There are a lot of Christians who do that today. And what often happens is that in our weakness, we're faced with that legalism, then we, we succumb to it and we become legalistic ourselves. And when we're faced with legalism, it's a trap. It's a trap to turn our attention away from God's grace and to human behavior. Last last time we looked at the dangers of being legalistic. This week I want to close by taking some time to look at how we ought to respond when legalism targets us. First I want to look at a couple of wrong ways to respond to the legalist because I've done both and neither is helpful. The first one and this is the one I'm most prone to and I confess that I have done this so many times. Defensiveness defensiveness. Being defensive doesn't help. It doesn't help. Oftentimes the outcome of being defensive is to flaunt our liberties, right? If you, for example, feel like you have the freedom, since we talked about this last time with the wineskins, if, if you feel like you have the freedom to enjoy beverages that can, contain alcohol, and then you're confronted by someone who gives you all the reasons that a Christian shouldn't do that, what is your response? Is it, I'm going to drink beer even harder? <laughs> right? And then you post pictures of all the craft beers that you try on Facebook so that the legalists will see it and be shamed. You'll like, you know, they do their coffee and their devotions and then you do your beer and your Bible devotions, right? Like, and then why Christians have the liberty to drink alcohol is like the number one topic of every conversation you have. Right? You've turned your liberty into a crusade, let's face it. Right? It, it really doesn't matter at that point how right you might be because the response is not helpful. It's actually hurtful. The second, the second response, it's the opposite, pandering. Right? Tucking your tail between your legs and either not expressing the liberty that God gave you or purposefully hiding it when you face criticism. That's, that's also not helpful. You don't want to flaunt your liberty, but you also don't want to reject the liberty that God has given you. Both of those reactions muzzle God's mercy. So how can we respond to legalism in a healthy, God-honoring way? Let me give you a few pointers, and I'm sure there are many, many more, but hopefully these help. I'm going to start with number one, consider the criticism. Probably the hardest one too. Consider the criticism. None of us is ever going to strike the right balance on how we exercise our liberty. Let's face it. We're sinners. We're broken. We're corrupt. So praise or, or, or when people come to us and they either criticize us or they, or they tell us why they love what we're doing, those are great opportunities to pause and reflect on our own holiness. Are we doing the right thing? There are two equal and opposite heresies that we see the New Testament authors warn Christians about. Legalism and antinomianism. Legalism, as we know, is a strict adherence to a set of rules or applying personal convictions to other Christians. 
Paul addressed the, the Judaizers in Galatians. He addressed them. They had tried to uh, impose Jewish ceremonial law on the Gentile Galatian churches, and he addressed them with seething anger because what they were doing was harmful and hurtful to God's people. Antinomianism is the opposite of legalism. It says that by grace, Christians are set free from the need to observe any moral laws. It's false. It's a lie. I had a close friend a number of years ago who wanted me to officiate his wedding. He and his fiance were living together at the time. And I addressed that with him, with both of them as sin. And I, and he proceeded to come up with a whole bunch of passages to try to demonstrate that there's no longer any need to live according to a biblical set of morals since Jesus died on the cross and forgave all the sin anyway. And he got a lot of that from a popular TV preacher with big hair. And when I demonstrated that he had not understood any of those passages in their context and that the New Testament not only affirms the Ten Commandments, but also strongly teaches how we are to live moral lives, he could not accept that. However, Matthew 5 says this, Matthew 5, 17. says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever reacts, relaxes one of these, the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Antinomianism is addressed in places like James and Jude who are facing uh, just people who are living licentiously. But I like what Paul says in Galatians when he talks about legalism. He says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So it's important that we consider the criticism when we're faced with it because it may not actually be legalism after all. Maybe there is something we need to look at. So that's the first thing. First thing is always consider the criticism. The second thing, love the critic. Love the critic. John 13, 34 and 35 says this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another by this people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Since we cannot judge the inner heart of someone who confesses to be a Christian, we have to assume that we're on the same team unless it's obvious that a person is showing obvious fruits of, of not being a Christian by being in habitual unrepentant sin or by confessing a clear heresy. We can assume at that point that they're not a genuine Christian. But even at that, even though we're not on the same team with those guys, we still have to love them, right? So the principle remains. But particularly if our relationships in the church are rooted in love, we are less likely to become defensive or pander to legalism. And if we're living under the law of love, we are less likely to offend our brothers and sisters, which the Bible tells us, do not offend your brothers and sisters. Number three, pray. 
Number three, pray. We always act according to what we believe, right? We always do. If we trust God, we will go to him, right? We can pray over the criticism. We can pray for the critic. And we know that he will answer our prayers. We know that we will never strike the perfect balance. But when we go to God, we know that he hears us. Number four, do good. Number four, do good. First Thessalonians 5, 15 to 18 says that, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. If we're focused on doing good and being merciful, our actions will speak for themselves. Instead of fighting the criticism or caving into it, just continue to follow Jesus and do what's right. Rejoice in liberty. Number five, rejoice in liberty. In the same passage that Paul warns us not to offend someone else with our liberty, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 30 and 31. 1 Corinthians 10, 30, if I... If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In Galatians 5.1 it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. See, if you have liberty to enjoy something that not all believers may have the liberty to do, rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. But here's the thing. We need to know if our liberty is actually from God, or, right? I, how do we know that? Okay, let me just give you two things. First, there are things that are specifically forbidden in Scripture, right? Murder, worshiping a false god, sexual activity outside of the marriage between a man and a woman, lust, theft, a number of other things. There are things that are strictly forbidden. You don't have liberty in those areas. There's no liberty. Don't, right? There are also things that are required of us in scripture. We must do these things. Love, prayer, baptism, communion, submission to God, submission to one another in a healthy church context, humility, caring for the sexual needs of your spouse, disciplining your children, a whole long list of others. We must, must do those things. There's no liberty there. But if the activity in question is not specifically prescribed or prohibited, in scripture, we have that freedom. We have that liberty. And we need to pray and decide if that is something that God has given us. And that brings us to number six. Know God's word. Because that informs all of this, right? It's kind of obvious we need to know God's word in order to know what God requires of us and where we have liberty. And when we know God's word, we can be more secure when faced with criticism and legalism because we're not going to have the anxiety of knowing whether or not they are right. We will know. Psalm 119, 9 to 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. 
I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Let this be our prayer this morning. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth in the way of your testimonies. I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Beautiful. Let that be our prayer. To sum it up, don't respond to legalism with defensiveness or pandering. But consider the criticism, love the critic, pray, do good, rejoice in liberty, and know God's word. If we do those things and we remember to live under the law of love, we may enjoy our liberties with thanksgiving and will not harm our brothers and sisters in the process. And that should be the goal. We're going to go into a time of communion here. And as you receive your elements, I'd ask that you would hold on to them so that we can all partake of them together at one time. But as you hold them, let each of us reflect on our relationship with this bread and juice. Think about it. Have we turned this ordinance into a regulation? Or are we receiving it with gladness and thankfulness for Jesus? Do we have issues of unforgiveness or conflict that we need to address with someone so that we can come to the table with a right heart? Listen, you have a phone with you in all likelihood. Shoot him a text right here, right as we enter that time of reflection. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 29. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. You see, this is a, this is a, 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 a banquet. It's a feast for believers. It's not for the unbeliever. So if you're not a believer, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus yet, allow it to pass by and reflect on that and consider trusting Jesus. So I want you to take a few minutes to reflect and prepare to receive the Lord's Supper with humility and with gladness. And with that, let us pray. Our holy God, we surrender our thoughts and attitudes to you. Thank you that, we have, that you have chosen to call us filthy sinners, broken, corrupt people to follow you. Thank you for cleansing us of the sin that has completely enveloped and corrupted us. Lord, forgive us of our sins, for we have not loved you with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We judge unrighteously, and we fail to see our own sinfulness as we look upon the sins of our neighbors. Lord, forgive us for trusting our behaviors instead of your grace. Forgive us for imposing our convictions on those around us, and forgive us for responding poorly when the same is done to us. Lord, cleanse us of our sin and of our pride that we might be made 
holy like Jesus. God, be present with us now as we prepare to receive this sacred feast. Lord, Jesus has removed from us the debt of sin and called us to follow him. And it is by your unending eternal grace that the blood of Jesus was poured out on that wretched, terrifying, horrible, beautiful cross. Lord, humble us now as we prepare to receive this holy feast in the name of our Lord Jesus our Savior.